final speaker on this program is Dr. Ronald Bukowski, who commented on key ASCO papers on renal cell cancer and urothelial cancer. Dr. Bukowski began by discussing one of the most important and discussed papers at the ASCO meeting, the so-called Avorin study, which evaluated interferon alone or with bevacizumab. The trial was designed to look at survival and demonstrate a difference in survival, and also a secondary endpoint was progression-free survival. The study accrued over 600 patients, and first interim analysis that was conducted of progression-free survival and survival demonstrated a significant improvement in progression-free survival for one of the arms. That arm happened to be the bevacizumab interferon arm, and that improvement in progression-free survival was 100%. For example, for the patients getting interferon plus placebo, the progression-free survival was in the range of five months, and for patients getting the combination with bevacizumab, it was over 10 months, 10.2 months. And that's a very significant difference in terms of improvement in progression-free survival. They then looked at the response rates in the two arms and found that there was a significant improvement in overall response, meaning partial and complete response. Most of these were partial responses. In the bevacizumab interferon arm, the response rate was 31%, and in the other arm, it was in the range of 12 or 13%. And again, that's a very significant difference. They also looked at survival in a very preliminary way and found that the two curves appeared to diverge with improvement for bevacizumab interferon, but as yet, it's still preliminary, and they really don't cross the boundaries to declare that there's a true survival benefit. They looked at side effect profiles, and I think the side effect profile of the combination with bevacizumab, at least in terms of grade three and four side effects, was probably greater, but I don't know that we had enough information presented to really make that determination in a very significant way at this point in time. So although adding bevacizumab probably increases the side effect profile, I think we need more data in order to evaluate it. The conclusions of the presenter, who was Dr. Escudier, were that, indeed, this represents a significant improvement of patient outcome with regard to measurement using progression-free survival and response when you give the combination of bevacizumab and interferon together. And it's important to remember that the bevacizumab dose here was the 10 milligram per kilogram dose, the one that was used in the phase two studies in the U.S. in the past, survival too early to assess. And the suggestion here is that this demonstrates, along with the phase two data, that bevacizumab with interferon is certainly an important treatment to be considered for patients with untreated renal cancer, which is the component who were in this particular study. These were all untreated patients with clear cell cancer for the most part. So the issue was, is it interferon plus bevacizumab or is it bevacizumab alone that's producing the benefit. And I think one could certainly discuss that point. My take on this is that when you look at the study in a bit more detail, and this is an important trial, so I think we should spend some time on it because it is going to change some of the practice patterns that now are established. When you look at the study in more detail and look across the various prognostic groups that we utilize, and that's employing the Moyle Sloan Kettering prognostic factor analysis, there are three groups, good, intermediate, and poor risk. In the good risk and intermediate risk, you see significant benefit for the combination of interferon and bevacizumab. In the poor risk group, you don't see that. Now, it may well be that it's purely a numbers game and that the number of patients in the poor risk group are too small or that, indeed, we're seeing some biologic differences with regard to effects here. So the effects aren't seen across all subgroups, and I think that's a relevant case. Whatever the case might be, I think it's important to ask the question, does this study conclusively show 
that the combination is better than interferon alone. And I think that clearly it does, at least in terms of progression-free survival. And our current thoughts are that progression-free survival, when it's improved, will be reflected in overall survival, probably. But the caveats in the study are the following. We don't have in this two-arm study a third arm of bevacizumab alone. That would be critical in terms of demonstrating what is what. Because when we look at the data that has been generated from previous studies in the U.S., a study by Jim Yang looking at bevacizumab in cytokine refractory patients and a study that I ran which utilized bevacizumab with or without erlotinib in untreated patients, there's clear benefit to the patients receiving bevacizumab. So the question is, is it predominantly bevacizumab that's causing the improvement here? I suspect it may be, but I don't know that we can be 100% for sure. We would like to suggest that interferon is a difficult drug to give and not necessarily the easiest agent to give long-term. Therefore, if it's truly bevacizumab alone, well, that should be what we would focus on as a drug to use. You were the person who actually did the discussion of this paper, and there were people that I was talking to that came away from this trial and said, I'm going to seriously consider using bevacizumab alone. And one of the issues there is what would be the side effects and tolerability of bevacizumab alone compared to, for example, sunitinib in this palliative situation. What would your assessment be of that? So I think that's an important question, and that's one that all oncologists will ask themselves. What will be the better drug in terms of tolerance? And I think, without a doubt, it's going to be bevacizumab. I think the side effect profile of single-agent bevacizumab is going to be superior to sunitinib. We don't have any true comparators in terms of a study to make that decision on the basis of prospective data, but I think there's no doubt that that's going to be the case. And so if one's looking for the least toxic approach with clear benefit demonstrated in a phase three trial in terms of aggression-free survival, people will choose bevacizumab. That's the point I tried to make, is that I believe the data suggests that it's bevacizumab having the major effect, and people are trying to get away from the use of cytokines, and clearly that's something that this kind of study will address. Now, in your discussion, though, you basically talked about using sunipnib at this point as first-line therapy, which really has been the situation for a while. Can you talk about sort of why you came to that conclusion? So the question is whether sunitinib is better as frontline therapy than bevacizumab with or without interferon. And when we look at the subgroup analyses, and again, it's not necessarily good practice to compare subgroups directly, but one gets a sense of the drug effect across various prognostic groups, and you can certainly look at one study compared to another study in that sense. You can't compare them statistically, but you can get a sense. So in the sunitinib data that was presented at ASCO, all subgroups benefited from the good, intermediate, to poor risk, and the benefit was uniformly seen. The median progression-free survival for sunitinib is in the range of 14.5 months. When we compare that to what we have with bevacizumab, well, the results are not quite as robust. Bevacizumab median progression-free survival in the good risk group is going to be 12 and a half months, and in the poor risk group, there was no benefit seen. Now, can you compare them? Well, when you look at the common arm, and that's the interferon arm, you see that the outcomes appeared quite similar in the two. So perhaps that allows us to draw some conclusions. And so I came away suggesting that at this point in time, I didn't think the data as presented suggested that bevacizumab was superior 
or equivalent to sunitinib. It may well be. And really what we need now is a sort of a tiebreaker, if you will. We need to take this question to a standard of care approach study and ask the question, which of these two is better? Now, one of them will come out to be better because it's going to be less toxic, but that doesn't mean it's better. I mean, I think if we have overall superior results with even a treatment that has more side effects but is a manageable treatment, then clearly it's going to be something that will be utilized. So right now we're left with two potential treatments in the frontline setting, sunitinib and bevacizumab with or without interferon. And how one chooses those two treatments clearly is up to past experience and use of drugs and so on. And one thing that I failed to mention was that sunitinib by itself has a major response rate of 46%. That's really the highest we've ever seen in kidney cancer. When you compare that to bevacizumab alone, which is the monotherapy data that we have, it's going to be somewhere around 13 to 14%. The data in the Evoran study was the combination. So, I mean, there are things that, if you pick at these two studies, suggest that sunitinib will be the superior treatment, at least in terms of response rate and certain better effects in selected subgroups. And it may not be as good in terms of the toxicity profile, but again, I think the toxicity of that drug is certainly a manageable one. What do you think the sentiment is right now in the clinical investigator community about this question? Do the majority sort of support your thoughts, or is there a diversity of opinion? Well, I think there's great diversity. I mean, I think everybody's sort of interested right now in trying to define what the best treatment is, not necessarily in a setting of a standard of care in terms of monotherapy, but looking at these novel combinations of targeted therapy that we have. And what I suggested in the plenary discussion was that we could answer that question and also look at a very novel combination. The novel combination is these two drugs, sunitinib yeah. and bevacizumab. That's a very interesting combination to me. Is it a tolerable one? Probably. Group at Memorial Sloan Kettering and the group at the Cleveland Clinic are both studying that to determine its toxicity and its applicability in a wider group of patients. And if it turns out to be the case that it is, well, then you have clearly a very neat package if you want to do a three-arm study. Now, it's a large study, and the question is, who would do it? Would it be the NIH? Well, I don't know that the NIH is ready to pick or do anything like that at this point in time. They're hooked on to a trial called the BEST trial, B-E-S-T trial. And so I think if you surveyed 10 people who do these kinds of studies and are considered to be thought leaders in the field of kidney cancer, you'd probably get 10 different answers right now. Well, that's reassuring. <laughs> well, I think that's unfortunately the case, and nobody has come to a sense of what to do. I thought I should put out there a proposal that would give some people thought and pause based on the data that we have, and I think that's what I did, and I think there is some support for that, but I'm not sure that everybody would buy into that right now because everybody has their own particular area of interest right now that they're trying to look at, and although I think that's good, I think we as a community have to take the French approach, and that is the French have been very proactive in performing studies in kidney cancer, large randomized trials, because clearly we don't get the answer from phase two studies. We need the large randomized trial like the Avoran trial, like the trial with sunitinib versus interferon to provide the data for us in terms of practice patterns and such. I actually was serious about the fact that it's reassuring. I've heard from a lot of oncologists that when they know that the investigators are kind of struggling, they do find it reassuring, and they know that they're not the only ones who are trying to figure out what this means. Well, I think that's right. <laughs> Let's kind of rock through a bunch of other things. Clearly, that Avorin presentation was one everybody was pointing towards. Uh, I wanted to ask you about a presentation you actually did looking at phase three trial serafinib. Can you talk about that paper? What I did was update the study that we performed comparing serafinib to a placebo, updated in terms of survival, because the study was now mature, and we wanted to present the survival data so that one could get a sense of, indeed, did the drug have an effect on the primary measure of clinical benefit, and that is survival. Now, this is the so-called target study. The so-called target study. So this study was a little different than the Avorin trial and the trial with sunitinib, and it's different because it focused on patients who had had prior therapy. So this is a patient group 
predominantly who had prior cytokine treatment, 80% of them, and the other 20% had varying drugs, chemotherapy, hormones, and so on. So it's a different group. If you remember, the original target study outcome was presented in ASCO 2005 by Dr. Escudier and demonstrated that the progression-free survival for patients getting serafinib was improved to 5.5 months compared to those getting a placebo, for which it was 2.8 months. And on that basis, the drug was ultimately approved for clinical use in the United States and Europe. And also, on that basis, the trial was amended at that point in time. And that amendment was put into effect somewhere around May or June of 2005. And that amendment allowed patients to cross over from placebo to active drug. When we analyzed the trial and we had the information in front of us, because at that point there were no drugs available for kidney cancer that were useful, we thought that it would be in patients' best interest to allow them to cross over should they want. And indeed what happened was that over 200 patients decided that they would be crossed over from placebo to active drug serafinib. And in our minds, we knew that that might affect the ultimate survival analysis if indeed serafinib was a useful drug. And so the purpose of the presentation that I made was to update the results to see whether indeed the final survival data reflected the effect of serafinib in the crossover or whether indeed we saw a survival benefit. So the data as presented indeed did demonstrate that when you compared the median survival for patients with serafinib treatment to those with placebo, the difference was not significant. However, when the amendment was put in place, we also put into place an amended analysis plan. And that amended analysis plan allowed us to to do a censored survival analysis, and that is the patients who crossed over from placebo to serafinib were censored in terms of their survival at the time they crossed over. Indeed, as we start to look at survival in many of these targeted therapy studies now, certainly the sunitinib study is one, the bevacizumab studies are others, because all these patients will have access to numerous drugs, such as sunitinib, such as serafinib, and such as avastin, and also timsorolimus, all of this may sort of obscure the survival effect. And so one might not necessarily see a true survival effect unless you build in just sort of a censored analysis. And that was the purpose of the presentation. Now, the other thing that you reported on that was interesting was the tissue correlation or sera correlation. Can you talk about what you found there? We were interested in asking questions about biomarkers, whether any biomarkers that would be useful in predicting outcome or helping us understand the effects of these drugs. And indeed, we looked at tissue with regard to phosphorylated ERK, and one of the targets of serafinib is RAS and the RAF pathway. And so we looked at differences between primary tumor specimens in terms of levels of phosphorylated ERK, and we really couldn't find any difference between the treatment groups in terms of serafinib groups with regard to the levels of phosphorylated ERK nor in the... What is ERK? ERK is a downstream kinase that is in the RAS pathway, and it's one of these kinases that ultimately is important in cell proliferation. So this was done because of the original activity of serafinib, not under the guise that we thought this would show us anything because we didn't think this pathway was important in renal cancer, but we thought that the VEGF pathway would be important because of the activity of the drug and the kind of clinical findings that were being noted. And so as part of the study, biomarkers were obtained in terms of vascular endothelial growth factor levels in the plasma and also soluble VEGFR2 levels. And so we looked at changes over time in those particular biomarkers. And I think as predicted, because this was seen in the sunitinib trial and published, that one sees a gradual elevation of plasma VEGF levels when you give patients serafinib, and that's because you're blocking the pathway for signaling. 
and also one sees a decrease in soluble receptor levels, in this case soluble VEGFR2. We looked a little further with regard to the VEGF levels and their importance in terms of predicting outcome and found that indeed, as reported previously, that patients with high VEGF levels defined as above the median had a shorter progression-free survival than individuals who had low VEGF levels. And then we used that information to look at whether indeed VEGF was a prognostic factor in patients with renal cell carcinoma and found that indeed it was a factor that should be considered in terms of analyses in the future and it along with performance status, the exact moral sloan kettering prognostic factor group and baseline VEGF levels as well as treatment all appeared to have an important role in predicting outcome. Let's talk a little bit about Abstract 5024 presented by Bob Mozer, which was an update of the sunitinib versus interferon trial. Dr. Mozer presented the second analysis of the serafinib data. First was presented at ASCO last year, and this was sort of an update. And what Dr. Mozer did is summarize the additional results that have been accumulated since that time. And he went over a little bit about the study design, which I think we're probably all familiar with, and that is randomization to sunitinib or interferon alpha. And remember, these are untreated individuals with predominantly clear cell cancer. So the Avoran trial, the serafinib targets trial, and the sunitinib trial were all focusing on patients with clear cell cancer. What I found interesting on this presentation was the review of the outcome data and response data. Dr. Mozer reviewed the data that now exists with regard to response and investigator-assessed responses in the patients getting sunitinib were at the level of 46%. And so as additional data have come in over this past 12 months, there have been additional patients who have responded. Interferon, on the other hand, the response rate was 12%. If you look at the independent center review, which he sort of presented side-by-side with the investigative assessment, the response rate to sunitinib was 39%, and that to interferon was 8%. So, I mean, you do see some decrease, and that's usually the case with central review-type data but we still see a major effect. And this response rate of 46% is really, you know, sort of a major finding in the field of kidney cancer. We've never seen that before in terms of a large randomized trial. He updated the progression-free survival for the study, and it remains robustly different with the median for the sunitinib patients being 11 months and those for the patients getting interferon five months. And so that remains quite different. The last point I think that probably is of interest is the analysis by risk groups. And I keep going back to this issue about risk groups, but I think that that's an important issue because we now have a drug which is designated for poor risk, and I know we'll talk about that later, and that's timsirolimus. And so one will want to know a little bit of what some of these other targeted agents can do because we don't really have any other studies that have focused on this particular group of individuals. So this risk analysis or analysis by risk status that Dr. Mulcher presented demonstrated that there's benefit across all risk groups, favorable, intermediate, and poor. And for example, in the poor risk group, the median progression-free survival for sunitinib patients was 3.7 months in the interferon group, 1.2 months. And so there's significant differences between the two groups, whatever group you look at. And I think that's an important issue for this drug. So very often we discuss whether you can give sunitinib to really sick patients because it does have some side effects. But clearly in this study, there were 6% of the patients defined as poor risk. That number is about 50 And their outcomes, although they're certainly shorter in terms of progression-free survival than the good-risk patients or the intermediate-risk patients, still showed benefit. And if you say, how
how great was that? Well, it's almost a tripling of progression-free survival. So I think this agent, although it does have a toxicity profile that sometimes is a little bit problematic for some patients, clearly does benefit all subgroups. And finally, he proposed some analyses based on the look at patients getting sunitinib to see what prognostic factors might be operative here because all the analyses that we have really were done in patients in the cytokine era and he has looked here at this group who got sunitinib, and these are untreated patients, and found three factors that he might use to construct risk groups, and that was performance status, time from diagnosis to treatment, and corrected calcium. And then they go on and construct a nomogram, which is a complicated way to look at predicting outcome of the individual patient. So this was a nice presentation because it brought us up to date on the information from sunitinib phase three trial and then updated not only progression-free survival, but the outcome by risk groups, and finally sort of analyzed the patients in this study from the standpoint of their outcomes and what factors may have been predictive in terms of their overall progression-free survivals. What's your take on paper number 5028, a late breaker, looking at the use of interleukin plus interferon as adjuvant therapy? There have been a lot of attempts to use adjuvant therapy in renal cancer. We have two ongoing right now two large studies, one in the U.S. and one in Europe, focusing on the targeted agents, sunitinib, serafinib, and such. This is an older study which attempted to utilize a regimen that was developed in Italy, which is sort of a low-dose regimen with cytokines. The low doses of IL-2 and interferon are administered in a cyclic fashion. And really, when you give the dose levels that are utilized in this particular study, the side effect profile is quite good. For example, the IL-2 is 1 million international units per meter squared every 12 hours for two days, and then it's given daily for another three days. These cycles are repeated once a week for four weeks, and then there's the rest. And so it's intermittent therapy. And the treatment, interestingly, in this study was continued for a total of five years. The cycles by the third, fourth, and fifth years were every six months, but nevertheless, it's long-term therapy. The patients who were selected were those who had surgery and had some factors which suggested that they were at increased risk for recurrence, such as lymph node positivity, T3 tumors, sometimes T2 tumors, and patients were randomized to get either this combination of IL-2 and interferon or to be observed. And the total number of individuals in the study was about 300. So not a terribly large study, but it was powered to show some difference in disease-free survival that might be clinically useful. And also, importantly, all patient categories were eligible. And that is not only patients with clear cell cancer, but patients with non-clear cell tumors were also included in this study. I think the upshot of the study is that the regimen's tolerable, but when you look at the data on recurrence-free survival in this adjuvant trial and overall survival, there is no difference between the two arms. They appear to be similar in terms of outcomes. So in terms of the primary endpoint, disease-free survival, and also, importantly, overall survival, no difference is demonstrated. The authors then did do some additional subgroup analyses to see what patients may have benefited from this particular treatment approach, and I think they came up with several groups that appeared to have more benefit as defined by these subgroup analyses. And these were patients with low-grade tumors, which were graded as one or two, younger patients, less than 60, or patients with T3A tumors. And so also these individuals were lymph node negative in terms of no lymph node metastases. And so they're suggesting that perhaps in those subgroups, this regimen might have some activity. I think the take on the study is that it's another adjuvant trial with cytokines that is negative And the subgroup analyses, although interesting and trying to identify groups that might benefit from cytokine therapy, these prolonged cytokine therapy really don't help us that much in terms of selecting patients. I think we ought to be convinced that cytokines 
whether it's IL-2 chronically or interferon or the combination, do not appear to have an adjuvant effect in renal cancer. So I would assume and hope that this may be the last cytokine trial that we do. And we now invest our interest and resources in trying to complete the studies that I'd mentioned, the one that in the United States comparing serafinib, sunitinib, and placebo, and the one in Europe comparing two different schedules for serafinib and placebo. I think they're important trials. They're going to take a long time. It's going to be over a total of 3,000 patients in both studies, but it will certainly provide some very critical data that we're all interested in as to whether these drugs do have any kind of adjuvant effects. You were talking before about management of patients with poor risk features, and Janice Dutcher presented data from looking at temsorolinus. Can you talk about her study? I like this abstract. I think this was an important presentation that really summarized some of the data we'd not heard before in the temsorolinus study. So if you remember, this study originally was a three-arm study in which interferon, temsorolinus, and the combination were compared. And the ultimate outcome was that there was a survival benefit for patients getting timsorolimus compared to those getting interferon, which was a statistically significant one. And so the survival difference was utilized ultimately to get this drug approved. The data that were presented at ASCO at a poster session really then focused on some additional analyses in these patients to try to look at subgroups. And the subgroups that were selected to look at were histology, were there differences in patients with regard to clear versus non-clear cell, and were there differences in patients who could be classified as intermediate versus poor risk by the Memorial Sloan Kettering classification. If you recall, this study modified the memorial criteria to enhance its accrual and added a sixth criteria of number of metastatic sites. And what they did then was analyze the data that they had using the memorial criteria to suggest that 25% of the patients in the trial really were intermediate risk by memorial criteria and 75% were poor risk. And so they looked at any differences in those patient outcomes with regard to treatment with interferon or temsorolimus. And so I think a short answer to the question is, do clear cell patients benefit and do non-clear cell patients benefit? Well, it appears both groups benefit, but when you look at the data for non-clear cell, at least in terms of overall survival and progression-free survival, it appears to be more robust than for clear cell. But I think one would have to say that both groups appear to benefit from treatment with this, but more so non-clear cell. So I'm starting to think that this is potentially a drug for patients with non-clear cell cancer based on the subgroup analyses that they did. What interested me was when they started to look at the intermediate prognostic group and the poor prognostic group defined by memorial criteria, there were some differences. And the effect of timsorolimus didn't appear as great in the intermediate group. And as a matter of fact, the outcomes for patients getting interferon were better than those getting timsorolimus in the intermediate group. And so right now, the data that we have certainly supports the fact that this drug appears to have major effect in non-clear cell patients and also in patients with poor prognosis, if you define it by the memorial group. But the data are less robust in the intermediate prognostic group. And certainly we're going to need other information from other studies to look at intermediate and good risk patients with clear cell cancer. But this study did confirm the fact that this drug clearly has activity in a poor risk subset and also in this group that's very difficult for us to treat right now because we really didn't have anything that one could consider a good drug, and that would be the non-clear cell patient. Let's talk a little bit about paper 5035, looking at sunitinib and bevacizumab refractory disease. One group of patients that we're seeing very frequently now, at least in tertiary centers, and I'm sure they will be seen in the community oncologist's office soon, is the patient who fails targeted therapy because all of the individuals, for the most part, treated with these newer agents 
have delay of their tumor growth and improvement in their progression-free survival, but for the most part, they're partial responses, and so we don't see complete regressions. These endpoints ultimately affect survival, but patients recur. And so we have this group of patients coming back now who have had other targeted agents, for example, bevacizumab in this study. And so this trial was an attempt to look at patients who had received prior bevacizumab and ask whether one of the other targeted agents, sunitinib, would have a demonstrable effect in those particular patients. Additionally, they looked at some biomarkers here to try to get a sense of whether VEGF levels and VEGF receptor levels, soluble VEGF receptor levels, would be at all predictive of outcome. The data really are most robust for the phase two component of the study. I think there were 60 patients in this trial, and they received sunitinib in the traditional dose of 50 milligrams for four weeks out of six. All of these individuals were characterized as having failed bevacizumab, and that is their tumors had progressed on bevacizumab or within three months of receiving bevacizumab. And what was interesting was that the response rate to sunitinib in this trial was in the range of 20%. So even though patients had failed bevacizumab, they still appeared to have some benefit from the use of sunitinib as second-line therapy. And there was a large number of these individuals who had stable disease. The biomarker studies that were done also showed that there were effects on soluble VEGF and receptor levels as well as VEGF levels that were associated with the administration of sunitinib, very much like what I described for serafinib, and that is that the VEGF levels go up as you give the drug and the soluble receptor levels go down. And they sort of looked a little bit more closely at subtypes of VEGF and thought that VEGF-C might be associated with longer progression-free survival and objective response rates to sunitinib treatment in this particular setting. So I think the importance of this paper is not necessarily the biomarker data, although it's interesting. I think the importance is that it does, in a prospective trial, suggest and confirm that when patients fail one targeted agent, like bevacizumab, the possibility of them responding to a second agent like sunitinib does exist. And we're going to see a sequence of these studies over the next several years looking at this question, trying to sort out this difference and this issue is what is the response rate? What is the overall progression-free survival? What is the survival? And is the correct way to use these drugs, giving them sequentially? In other words, starting with sunitinib, then with bevacizumab, then with serafinib, then with timsorolimus, or will the combination treatment be the best way to give these drugs and combine drugs up front? And so these are important questions to answer. And this study was one of the first to try to address this question of what about bevacizumab resistance? Would we see an effect? And if so, what was the magnitude of that effect? What do we know about therapy in the reverse direction, starting with sunitinib and then going to bevacizumab? We don't have any trials at this point in time that address that. We only have anecdotal reports suggesting that you also can see some benefit in terms of response in the patient who starts with sunitinib and then moves on to a drug like bevacizumab, but nothing like this last trial where you look at a relatively reasonable-sized cohort of patients to try to characterize it in a very critical way. That doesn't exist. There are proposals out there right now to look at this in more detail to get a sense of what is the effect of crossover from one drug to the other drug. And the three drugs that have been proposed for study in this setting are sunitinib, timsorolimus, and bevacizumab. And a six-arm study in which about 360 patients would be treated has been proposed as one way to look at this issue of sequencing. And it's also a standard care issue because I would think that many people in the community start to use these drugs in that particular fashion, starting patients on one drug when they fail, moving to a second agent. The question is, 
what should be the second agent, when should you declare a patient to have resistant or progressive disease and then switch them over and such. And these are questions which we don't have good answers for at this point in time. I think we're all sort of trying to understand the whole process and determine what is the best sequence and how do we use these agents. And it's going to take several years to sort this out, but it's another important issue to try to think about. We were talking before about the serum levels of VEGF and paper 5044 looked into that. Can you talk about what they found? Sylvie Negrier is an investigator from Lyon, France, and she has been a major force in understanding the treatment of kidney cancer with cytokine therapy. And Sylvie was an individual who had participated in several large trials that formed the basis for this analysis. There was a study called Percy Duo, which was for patients with good risk disease, and Percy Quattro for patients with intermediate risk disease. These definitions in France are a little bit different than the Morales-Lonkettering definitions, but the patient populations turn out to be pretty much the same ultimately when they're given. They chose about 300 individuals from these two studies to try to characterize the importance of VEGF levels in terms of correlation with survival. So in the serafinib paper that I presented, we looked at progression-free survival as the measure of clinical benefit and tried to correlate VEGF levels with that. In this paper, Dr. Negrier and her associates utilized ultimately survival in a population of 300 individuals, all treated, however, with cytokines. That doesn't invalidate the data. It just means that right now we're dealing with a cytokine-treated group. The outcome was that they looked at circulating IL-6 levels and also VEGF levels. In the past, this group had reported that IL-6 was an important prognostic factor. When they included VEGF levels at baseline in the analysis, VEGF became the most important prognostic factor, and really IL-6 dropped out as an important issue. So across the groups of patients and using multivariate analysis, they were able to demonstrate that the importance of VEGF levels as an independent prognostic factor for event-free survival and overall survival really was one that could be confirmed. And so she suggests that this finding alone would be very relevant if one were considering how to treat patients with newer drugs, and that is it would support the fact that somehow interrupting the VEGF pathway or the activities of this growth factor VEGF, even at the peripheral level with, for example, antibodies such as bevacizumab, would be an important issue. So this paper, I say, is one of several that looked at VEGF as an independent prognostic factor, and importantly, they found not only that it correlated with event-free survival, but also overall survival. Now, your group also reported a study looking at clinical factors associated with outcome in metastatic renal cell cancer. Can you talk about that? One of the concerns many of us have had is that the prognostic factor database that we have had is from 10 years ago, and it involves patients treated with cytokines such as interferon and IL-2. Like Dr. Mozer in the sunitinib interferon study, we wanted to analyze factors that might be predictive of outcome. And our predictive factors were five independent prognostic factors that might be able to predict the outcome with regard to overall progression-free survival. And we developed a set of criteria based on a multivariate analysis that included the performance status, the level of neutrophils, the level of platelets, and corrected calcium that one could utilize to then subdivide patients into three groups of favorable, intermediate, and poor prognosis. And all the patients that we were looking at were individuals who had been treated with drugs that would be considered to be VEGF inhibitors, drugs such as bevacizumab, serafinib, sunitinib, or axitinib. And all of these were on sort of clinical trials, and they were evaluated prospectively. So what we're attempting to do is what Bob Mozart attempted to do, and that is come up with a scheme that would utilize various prognostic factors that would allow us then to subdivide patients 
into clinical groups to be characterized in terms of their outcomes. Now, we use progression-free survival because our survival data yet are not mature enough, and so did Bob. Bob used progression-free survival. Sylvia Negrer, on the other hand, had data on survival. It just demonstrates the maturity of that study. So in summary, the prognostic factors that were identified in this study were time from diagnosis to study entry, ECOG performance status, level of neutrophils, level of platelets, and corrected calcium. A little bit different than the moral criteria, but some of them really have been looked at before and by other groups and have suggested that, indeed, they may be important. The level of neutrophils, the level of platelets are well characterized as having some importance. And clearly, this is a small group, 120 patients, and it needs to be looked at in more detail. Also, the other critique of this particular poster is that it's not only patients with no prior therapy. It includes sort of a mix of patients who have had treatment in the past with other agents. And so we may be mixing individuals here. And also we have different drugs. But I think these manuscripts that were presented are all attempts to then look at what factors might be useful in trying to predict outcome for patients who are going to get these targeted treatments. The last thing I want to ask you about is the issue of urothelial cancer and the late breaker looking at paclitaxel, cisplatin, gemcitabine versus gemcis alone. When you look at the ASCO proceedings this year, you see that kidney cancer really dominated. It just reflects the interest in the disease and the novel treatments that are emerging. Bladder cancer is still clearly an important issue and one for which we have some therapy, but less than optimal therapy, and an oral presentation by Dr. Belmont of a study which was an intergroup trial and it was trying to compare and give a sense to what is the optimal chemotherapy for advanced metastatic urothelial cancer. The two regimens that they chose to study were gemcitabine cisplatin, which could be considered a standard of care by many individuals for the treatment of this disease, or a regimen which included paclitaxel plus gemcitabine and cisplatin. So basically three drugs versus two drugs. And the study was a large one. It contained over 600 individuals, and it was powered to look at a survival endpoint. The two regimens are similar, except that for the three-drug regimen, the gemcitabine is only given twice during the cycle, day one and day eight. For the two-drug regimen, the gemcitabine is given on day one, eight, and 15. The doses are the same, so that one might suggest that there may be some differences in toxicity in this, and that is okay, certainly, as long as you can see the ultimate effect on survival and progression-free survival. So the upshot of this is in the 600 and 27 patients that were randomized in this trial, there was no difference in treatment in terms of the outcomes on survival and progression-free survival between the two regimens, so that there was no improvement with regard to clinical benefit measures. There were some differences in regard to response rates in the two regimens, and indeed the response rate for the three-drug program was higher than for the two-drug program, but that really didn't translate into an effect on overall benefit measured by survival and or progression-free survival. As a matter of fact, the differences were for the three-drug regimen, the response rate complete and partial was 57%, and for the two-drug regimen, it was 46%. So that was a difference, but it really didn't translate into clinical benefit. There was some issues with regard to differences in toxicity with the two-drug regimen having more hematologic toxicity, probably a reflection of the fact that gemcitabine was administered for three weeks rather than two weeks. And so the outcome of the study was that in a very large randomized trial, the group was unable to demonstrate that three drugs were better than two drugs when overall survival was the endpoint utilized.